This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25. If you have a pew Bible, it's, I believe, page 952. But uh, as you turn there, um, the wintry weather outside just reminded me that even though the holidays are behind us, they're not quite uh, altogether uh, out of our memory yet. And um, the holidays for, for me are kind of a bittersweet time. It's always a delight to be with family. Some of my family's here with me this morning even. Um, but it's always a reminder also of uh, family dysfunction. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you can relate to this or not, but uh, <clears throat> family pictures, um, is that always a challenge? Uh, you know, you're trying to get a group of people all on the same page, look here, please smile, no, quit talking. Uh, <laughs> just that whole dynamic is always just humorous and just kind of illustrates the, uh, the typical family dysfunction that goes on in, in many homes, uh, mine of which is uh, uh, no stranger. But dysfunction, it's not limited to families. Uh, unfortunately, it seems to be something that uh, is in our churches as well. And for the early church at Corinth, it was no exception. If they could have been given a name, a nickname, you might say they were the church of dysfunction. Uh, they were dealing with issues of sexual immorality that were very public and of a kind that were really embarrassing, actually. They were dealing with lawsuits among believers, uh, taking each other to court over petty issues. Uh, they have to be corrected about idol, engaging in idol worship in a form. Um, uh, they had uh, an over, uh, I don't know how you want to put it, aside from they were just overly focused on this gift of tongues. And uh, they even had a problem discriminating against the poor in their midst. But the issue that is most immediate in our, in our section here in chapter 1 is an issue of church unity and division. And so Paul spends uh, the first four chapters on this. And if, if, you, could, if you could imagine, they, they were kind of picking their favorite leader um, and getting behind him, rallying behind him, and causing these personality schisms. You know, it, it would be almost like, uh, be almost like us going, you know, I'm... I'm with Pastor Bob, or I'm with Dave Brown, or I'm with Ryan McKinney, and forming our own little cliques uh, within the body around those particular leaders. And they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulos, I'm of Cephas, or Peter, I'm of Christ. But <clears throat> this, is, this, is, this is something that we might look at and go, well, why spend four chapters on this? Why is this so significant? And I think, I think there's a couple reasons for that. If we, if we look in, uh, if we look in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? The unity of the body of Christ is something that is precious in the heart of God. And when we, when we form these cliques, when we, when we cause divisions, when we need to have our own way, it's something that breaks God's heart, and it destroys the unity of the body of Christ. So, so that would be one, one thing. Um, I think another reason is it stems from having a mindset of the culture. In chapter 2, verse 15, um, or 216, excuse me, it, Paul says, you know, we have the mind of Christ. And we as believers should have the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says the same. Uh, have this mind in yourself that was also in Christ. You know, an attitude of humility, a mindset of humility. So, there's obviously there's something dysfunctional, there's something broken that's going on. And then on top of that, in chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them carnal. 
When we, have these, when we have these issues of disunity in the church, it's actually a sign of our own fleshliness, immaturity in the faith, and our carnality. So this is a big deal, even though we don't always take it as a big deal. But I would, I would like to submit that this chapter, and in particular this section here from 18 to 25, is actually God's solution to our dysfunction. God's solution to our dysfunction. Before we get into the text, I'd like to just pray and ask the Lord to bless the time. Father, we come to you. We are truly broken, needy, dysfunctional people. (laughs) We readily admit that, Lord. Um, It's a new year, and we look to you, Lord, for for healing. We look to you for um, making us whole, making us right. Lord, may the, the power of the cross be what actually does that. Lord, as we look in your word today, I ask that your spirit would have freedom in our midst that you would speak through me, that you would speak to each of our hearts. Lord, you know the things that need to be addressed for each of us. You know the areas where we need to be encouraged. You know the the places where we need to be convicted. Only you know that, Lord, and only you can do that work. And the true power, if we learn anything from today, comes from you, comes from your word, and comes from your message and your spirit. Lord, may that be true as we look at this. May we be drawn to Christ, may he be exalted and lifted up in our midst. We just thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, looking at verse 18, excuse me, it says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we have two groups here. We have Two groups that represent all of humanity and two responses to this message that is given. We have this group that is those who are perishing, and this other group is those, us, who are being saved. And these two groups respond in two different ways. One is a response of unbelief, the other is a response of faith. And when God looks at the world and he looks at all of us, that's the only way he sees us. He sees us either as believing his message or as rejecting it in unbelief. You either fit into one of those two categories. Now, those who are perishing dismiss this message as folly or stupidity. It's actually the the word that's used is actually the word that we we get our English word moron from. We see this this message as moronic. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. Why in the world would we believe something that's stupid? And so the response of unbelief that the natural man has is this message doesn't make sense. It's stupid. We reject it. So it, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised when sometimes when we're sharing this message, if we encounter a little bit of resistance or uh, mockery or even some hostility, because quite frankly, it doesn't make sense to most people. In fact, we find out in chapter 2, verse 14, that these things are spiritually discerned. These are things that the Spirit of God has to reveal to people. Unless the Spirit of God is at work, this message does not make sense. It doesn't have any life-giving power without the Spirit of God. We should rejoice, actually, in this because we actually see that God's wisdom and love pursues us in our twisted, broken condition. Notice that it says, those who are perishing. This is a present present state. It's not a final state. This isn't beyond hope. These these are people who are perishing. They're on the road. They're heading down a destructive path, but it's not too late. I love Romans 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 8, because it, it speaks of God loving us while we're still his enemies. He pursues us and demonstrates his love by dying on the cross. Because after all, we were once all perishing as well. 
But God is now at work saving us who believe. Now, you notice it says here, those who are being saved. And again, it's in this present, present situation. And that's kind of unique because um, it's probably a good reminder because the, the Corinthian church, you know, they, they had this, they had this uh, spiritual arrogance about them. Uh, they kind of felt like they were, you know, all that in a bag of chips. Um, is that even a, a saying anymore? Blame them because most of my expressions come from my folks. I'm, I'm kind of a... a set in an older generation, apparently. But, um, so, so they had a spiritual arrogance about them. And if Paul had come on out and said, you know, those were perishing, but we're saved, and it was in a past final condition, that, that's not saying that that's not true. Paul definitely teaches that. But he uses this present idea. We are being saved. We are a work in progress. God is not done yet. And for these, for these people in a spiritual, a spiritual place where they sort of think they have it all together, and he has to address them and say, you really don't have it all together. You may think you're gifted, but man, you sure are carnal. You really have a lot of issues. You're really dysfunctional. This is really, this is, there's no other epistle in the New Testament that have as much corrective element to it as 1 Corinthians. It is truly one of those that's just almost painful to read in some respects and see what's in there. But Sometimes church has a tendency, and I'm not saying that we necessarily have this, but sometimes church, and maybe you've experienced this in the past, can some, sometimes feel a little bit like a clicky country club, that it's kind of for, you know, those that kind of have everything together. And I feel like that might be somewhat of what these folks had going for them. And by using this idea that we're not all there, it kind of reminds us of where we came from and that God's not done with us. Because Jesus came, he said, <clears throat> he said, you know, um, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. Now, according to the scripture, we're all sick. But Jesus came for those who recognize their sick condition and recognize their need. You know, church is for the needy and for the broken. Uh, too long I've spent in church trying to put on this facade, this face, that everything is Okay that I have all my spiritual ducks in a line and I'm a pretty good person because I want people's good opinion and that's ultimately how I get it. But the church isn't supposed to be that. You know, a healthy family is one where you can be real, where you can share what's going on in your life. And if it's performance-based living that we're living by, it's going to destroy us because we can't perform. That's why we need the cross. You know, does it feel safe to bring your baggage? If you have a lousy week and you've just blown it spiritually and you know that you tanked, is it a safe place for you to come? Is church a place where you can come and you can bring that? Your small group, is that a place where you can come and be real and say, you know, I failed this week and I need the grace of God. I need brothers and sisters to come alongside and pray for me. Is there that genuine, authentic reality, humility and relationships there. Because that's what it should be. That's what Jesus brought. And that's what he wants from us. Now this happens in the context of a community of faith. 
you know, the church is not an individual sport. Unfortunately, in our Western, Western uh, society, uh, America, for some reason, we, we've taken this rugged individualism and we've applied it to the church. And in a day of podcasts, radio ministries, YouTubes, we think that it seems to be okay to just me and God. And I see this, I see this played out in some very sad ways in, in, in family relationships and husbands and wives who, who seem to think that they're okay with God and yet their marriage is completely destroyed. It's not true. It's not true. Because we see our relationship with God is directly related to our relationship with others. 1 John in chapter 4, verse 20 and 21 tells us that. You can't say you love God and yet treat his family with contempt. It's not just his family either. It's his body. You know, we're the body of Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul learned that the hard way on the road to Damascus. You know, he's, uh, he's on his way to persecute Christians and God stops him in his tracks and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my saints. Why are you persecuting me? Because you see how we treat each other is ultimately how we treat Christ. And in our mindset of individualism, where it's just about us and God, we can sometimes deceive ourselves into thinking that we're okay. Notice finally here in verse 18, it says, it is the power of God. Now he starts off saying that those who, those who are being, uh, those who are on their way to destruction, those who, uh, those who are perishing, they see it as folly. And so you'd expect that he, he's gonna now use the opposite of folly, which would be wisdom, right? But instead he uses power. Why Power. I think it's because God isn't about information, he's about transformation. God is not about just making us smarter or trying to inform us of new things or helping us understand our human psyche and condition. We can understand our brokenness, we can understand our problems, but it won't give us any power to fix it. We need the power of God to transform our lives. And that's what the cross does. There's nothing else that transforms us like the cross. Verse 19, for it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah 29, verse 14, from the Greek Septuagint version. And this is an example of Hebrew parallelism. That just means that what the first line is talking about, the second line means the same thing. It's just kind of repeating itself for emphasis purposes. And in Isaiah 29, we have going on here the greater context is that uh, anytime a New Testament writer pulls, pulls from the Old Testament, he's, he's taking not just that individual verse, but he's taking the greater context and the surrounding, and he's pulling it in for the purpose of what he's talking about. So it's important to look at it. So the greater context is, you know, there's a king in Judah, his name's Hezekiah, and he's got some political problems, mainly this country called Assyria up in the north. And they, they've just started whacking on people, and it's not a very friendly situation. So he's got counselors, these wise guys around him, and they're saying... We need help. We need another ally. We need someone that's in our political corner. We should talk to Egypt. That makes sense. You're getting beat up on the playground. Get someone else who's going to help beat up the big guy. But unfortunately, God has a different plan for them, and he tells them, no, you don't want to make allies with Egypt. Okay, why? This seems rather stupid. This seems not smart. This seems really weak. Why would we do this? Well, God has his reasons, because God saves in his own way, and God's plans run contrary to what we expect. And sure enough, God delivers his people. In one night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are destroyed. God keeps his promise to them, protects them. 
but he delivers in a way that we don't expect. It seems weak. It seems stupid. Now, Isaiah 29, verse 16, just a couple verses later, explains why we see the way God does things kind of backwards. God says, my people have turned everything upside down. If you want to know why God doesn't make sense, it's because we turned everything upside down. That's exactly what happened at the, at the fall. When, we took, when, we took, when Eve took the apple or the fruit or whatever it was, it probably wasn't an apple, but when we rebelled against God, we turned everything upside down. The world around us is broken and messed up and dysfunctional because we rebelled against God. Things are not the way they should be. We turned everything upside down. But just a couple verses later in 29:18, God promises to turn everything right side up. He says, the blind will see, the deaf will hear. All of this dysfunction, all of this brokenness is going to be reversed. And you see, the power of the message of the cross turns things right side up and brings healing. Let's move on to verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, this is kind of God challenging these wise guys. Um, there's a lot of debate among scholars as to who these three groups are. Are these you know, examples of different Greek groups? Are they some Jewish involvement here? You know, is it a combination of the both? Ultimately, the point that he's making is, where's the wisest of the wise that you guys have? Because guess what? I'm going to foil all of your attempts at wisdom. And you know why? Because... Here it is, moving on into verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, the world in all of its wisdom, in all of its cleverness, in all of its whatever you want to call it, didn't know God. It did not lead to a relationship with God. It did not lead to anything that actually brings healing. And yet this message allows all to have access to God, not just merely the privileged, not just the educated, not just those who had the right birth, not just those who were guys instead of girls. You know, throughout history, we've had all sorts of ridiculous things of who has access to God and who doesn't. It's not about education or family lineage. Jesus said, you have to become like a little child, Matthew 18, verses two through three. And if a little child can accept the message of the cross, than anyone can. Access has been granted. And it's been done in a way that is completely backwards to what we would expect. All of the wisdom of the wise did not lead to knowing God. But the message, the foolish message of a cross, did. Now notice, it says, you know, through the foolishness, through the folly of what we preach. Now, for some, this idea of preaching, it leaves a bad taste in some people's mouths. Um, they've experienced being preached at as opposed to, you know, probably more of what's intended. And, and so it's, it's not necessarily even the, mes- the method of preaching that's in, in view here. It's probably, you know, he says, through the folly of what we preach. It's the content of the message. And preaching, it just means to proclaim, to make known. So that can be through what we say, but it's more than that. It's how we say it. This is actions, attitudes. This is an overall life because each of us are preaching. Each of us are preachers. When you go into your workplace on Monday morning, you're preaching. When you go to your school on Thursday afternoon, you're preaching. 
What is it that you're preaching? What are you saying? Not just with your mouth, but with your life. You know, if we say that God created us, loves us, and loved us enough to die for us after we broke everything and went into all sorts of dysfunction, and yet in the very next breath, we turn around and we badmouth our political officials, or we avoid people that identify with the LGBT community because they're a little strange, or we abuse this world for our own gain or pleasure, is that consistent? I don't think so. We preach with more than words, and we need to model the crucified life. Otherwise, our message is just contradicted, and it gives people an excuse not to believe it. Now, throughout this passage, we have tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation. We see uh, here in verse 21 um, that it saves those who believe, and then in verse 24, it says uh, those who are called. Two sides of the same coin. Both truths are laid side by side in this passage, since in the mind of God, there is no conflict. People are called to believe the message. Now, let's look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, the Jews, they were looking for a powerful king. They wanted a Messiah figure, someone who could come and whack the Romans. They did not enjoy these guys. They did not like their political... uh, political dependence that they had upon them, their, the way that they told them that what they could and could not do. They wanted their independence, and they wanted a king who was going to do it. In a sense, you could say that they wanted God on their terms, meeting their expectations. God proving himself, like all of the stories of old. You know, we still have this today. People, how many times have you heard someone say, you know, if only God would just show himself to me, then I'd believe. If there would just be a miracle in my life, I would believe. If God would just heal my friend, then I'd believe. If God would just, if God would just, it's God on our terms. You know, it's been said that God made us in his own image, and since then we've been returning the favor. But God doesn't fit in our little boxes that we've made for him. He blows through all of our expectations you know, when Jesus was on earth, one of the things that he said when his, when his uh, crowds were uh, looking for a sign, he said, there's no sign that's going to be given to you guys except the sign of Jonah, which that spoke of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We find that in Matthew 12, verses 39 through 40. You know, so that sign that was given to them is the same sign that's given today. Well, if the Jews were looking for, if they were looking for a sign, if they were looking for power, the Greeks weren't impressed with that. They wanted sophisticated philosophy and moving rhetoric. What's the newest idea on the block? You know, for us, we we live in a day of uh, social media, uh, Google, political news that's uh, at our inner, you know, just at the edge of our fingertips. We have smartphones, smart TVs, artificial intelligence. We have Siri and Cortana. We don't have brains anymore, quite frankly. <laughs> we don't even know our own phone numbers. <laughs> I, was talking with, uh, I was talking with someone before the message, and uh, he goes, hey, could you text me your phone number? I don't remember mine, and uh, you know, I'll be able to just turn around and text it back. And it's, just, it's just indicative that we are ever learning yet, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. We live in a day when truth is so subjective 
and there's no longer any bearings for social norms, for uh, any, any sort of a moral guidance. We're, we're just in a quagmire, and we're having to deal with questions that societies have never had to face because of it. Well, this idea of wisdom, <clears throat> the Greek seeking wisdom, it's not necessarily what we would think of from like an Old Testament Proverbs Hebrew wisdom thought, where that's you know, skillful living or wisdom applied. This is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is rather philosophy. This is speculation. And there's something rather comforting and nice about philosophy. Let's translate this for us, and we'll call it theology. There's something very comforting about being able to take theology, hold it out at arm's length. Think about it. Speculate. And ultimately, at the end of the day, just put it down. And it never has to touch us here. I did that for way too long in my life. You know, what we think about God needs to translate into action in our life. We can't just hold it at arm's length. It can't just be something that we speculate about. It has to be something that transforms us. I think that's part of what he's getting at here. So instead of appealing to the demand for signs or to the lofty philosophy approach of his day, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. This is the message of a crucified Christ. This is not Jesus as a good man or a wonderful teacher or a visionary, a prophet, or even a martyr. All those are true. But instead, it must be the message of Christ crucified or the message loses its power. Because you see, the cross confronts us all in our failures, in our brokenness, in our death, and exchange offers wholeness and healing and life. The cross offers hope to those in addiction. It brings light to those lost in darkness looking for meaning in life. The cross brings value to those marginalized and cast off by society, and it humbles the proud and self-righteous. The power of the message is in the cross. If we leave the cross out of it, we've blown it. It must be a crucified Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that the cross is disconnected from the resurrection and the truth that we find there and the the hope that we have. No, quite the contrary. Paul spends one of his longest discourses later on in the same epistle in chapter 15 discussing the importance of the resurrection. But what the believers in Corinth needed to hear and what we need to hear today in particular is the stigma and the weakness associated with the cross and embracing that thinking. Because the crucified life and the mind of the crucified one is the key to correcting dysfunction and brokenness, both in our families and in our churches. Well, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Why was it a stumbling block? Well, Quite frankly, in Deuteronomy 21, the Jews were told that whoever's hung on a tree is cursed. They saw the cross as a curse. And how in the world could a Messiah be cursed? How in the world could God's anointed one be cursed? This was, this was just scandalous. It struck also at the heart of their self-righteous law-keeping. When the law was given in Exodus 19, in verse 8, it says, All that the Lord has said we will do. 
Give us the list, we'll keep it. And of course they couldn't. None of us can, but they thought they could. This, 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 word, uh, this word here in the Greek, it's skondalon. I think I did something there, yeah. And uh, there are a few Greek people here, so I might not have pronounced that quite right. But it's a dead language, so we're all in good company. <clears throat> but it means that which gives offense causes revulsion. It arouses opposition, an object of anger or disapproval. It was a scandal. You can even hear the English word scandal in this word, scandalon. For the Jews, the idea of a Messiah, uh, their king, the powerful deliverer that they're looking for, for him to be nailed to a cross was absolutely scandalous. It also offends. So in other words, this message of a crucified Messiah angered them, offended them by its scandalous implications, and they stumbled over the rock of Christ and refused to believe the message. Now, we're like this too. The idea that we aren't good enough. How many times have you shared the gospel message with someone in a very humble, loving way, and you get to the point where you say, you know, we're all sinners, and it's like people just get super offended at that thought. What do you mean I'm not good enough? It's offensive. Now, make sure when you tell people that, that you do it in a nice way, because that's a hard pill to swallow. And we're actually going to get to that probably, but, but it's offensive. The idea that we're not good enough or the idea that God has to be the one to save us, it's, it runs against our very core. Well, for the Jews, it was a stumbling block. For the Greeks, it was folly. It was stupid to worship a dead man. You know, this smacked their worldview right in the face. You know, the, the cross spoke of humility, of shame, of sacrifice, of dependency rather than human pride and achievement. And there's a well-known graffito in Rome, and I think there's a picture of it here as well, um, that that pictures uh, pictures a worshiper standing before a crucified figure with the body of a man and the head of an ass, inscribed, Aleximos worships his God. This is how the Greeks saw the message of the cross. It was folly. Why worship a dead man? Because in their mind, the resurrection made even less sense. Well, if the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we proclaim a Christ crucified. Jews and Gentiles don't get it. Verse 24, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we have these two unbelieving groups, Jews and Greeks, those who think that they're good enough, those who are expecting God on their terms and he doesn't show up the way he wants, Greeks think it's folly, it's stupid, they don't understand. Yet from among these two, God calls individuals to see this message no longer as folly, stupidity, or scandal and see it as the very power and wisdom of God. That is us. We come here today and we see the message of the cross. And when we see it, it's the most beautiful thing. It is something that is near and dear to our hearts. 2,000 years ago, a cross struck fear into the hearts of those who saw it. And for us, 2,000 years removed from it, it's all in greeting cards and you know, Easter cards and things like that. And we sometimes lose some of the, the scandal. We lose some of the, the sheer shock of this idea. It's like, yeah, greeting card. Here, here's a guy on an execution chair. How's that? You know, that doesn't go over real well. 
But that is the idea behind this. This is something that is so counterintuitive. It's so against what we would expect. And yet, God opens our eyes. We see it. We have the ability to respond. And we respond in faith. And Christ is no longer seen as a scandal. He's no longer seen as stupid. He's no longer seen as weak, but he's seen as the strong one to save. He's seen as the one who gave it all for us and calls us to do the same. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When it says the foolishness, it's actually the foolish thing is actually the idea behind it. The foolish thing and the weak thing. Well, if there's a thing involved in this, it is the cross. It is the weak thing of God. It is the foolish thing of God. Man's wisdom and strength do not save or transform only God's weak and foolish thing, the cross. This was God at his weakest, doing that which seemed completely stupid to everyone, looking on, and yet it was the only thing strong enough and wise enough to get the job done. It's only the message of the cross that has the power to transform and correct human dysfunction caused by sin. This is God's solution to all the problems we have. And in fact, it forms the basis of addressing all the issues in this seemingly disconnected epistle. You read it, and it's like, where is he going with this? I mean, it's just like bopping from one thing to the next. This, this is the common theme. This is the common thread. At least that's my opinion. But the message of the cross runs completely opposite to what we expect and contains in it the power to save and transform those who believe it. Well, what about us? We can sit here, listen to some really interesting things about a passage that's 2,000 years old. But at the end of the day, what is God saying to us here? I think, first of all, we need to let the message do the offending. We need to let the message do the offending. We need to, we need to share this good news from a place of humility and love. Pride and superiority are completely inconsistent with the message that we share. People can't reject the message because of us as the messengers getting in the way. If people have any reason for rejecting the message, it needs to be that we're just completely stupid to believe what we believe. Let that be the only reason why people reject it is because it's stupid. It doesn't make sense. But if it's, you're a jerk with the way that you are sharing this with me, or you're offensive, you know, you just, you just seem to take glee in dancing on the fact that I'm going to hell. That is completely foreign to the attitude of grace to where, this, to where this is going. Our preaching must be consistent. Monday must look the same as Sunday. You know, instead of employees being a means to profit, business owners would seek to serve them and use businesses to bless their employees. I've seen this before, and it's actually quite, quite interesting. It's quite a blessing. It might look, instead of parents being the bad guys, teens might respect their parents and rather than bucking the system. Rather than using our words to cut others down, we might encourage and speak kindly whether they are present or not. I'm guilty of that. Talking about someone behind their back, that one's hard. Rather than husbands and wives living in strife and conflict, it would be giving of themselves and seeking to serve each other. Our message must be consistent with our life. Well, we need to let the message do the offending. We also need to embrace God's uncomfortable backwards perspective. 
That's kind of a mouthful, but that was the only way I could think of to communicate it. We need to embrace God's uncomfortable backwards perspective. You know, conflict arises when we don't get what we want. James is pretty clear about that. You want something, you don't get it, so you fight and quarrel. You know, God's ways seem backwards to us, but the crucified life demands an exchange of our old way of thinking for the new mind of Christ rooted in the cross. This is a mindset of sacrifice, of grace, of humility. What might it look like if we had the mind of Christ towards those around us? Well, we probably wouldn't have any petty squabbles over preference issues. It would be a church where people could be real without fear of judgment, where genuine relationships between young and old were happening, where people were visiting the sick in the hospital, where an older generation was investing in the younger instead of seeking fulfillment in retirement, where folks were reaching out to the hurting and downtrodden in our communities, caring for the homeless, working in prisons, helping teen moms choose life rather than abort their babies. Is that what people would see when they look in here in Brush Prairie, where they see these things? I, I see them. I'm encouraged by it. I do see them. Would they see Jesus living out through his body? Or would they see more of the normal selfishness that's around them? Would they see the light and the hope that they need? Well, finally, we need to admit our need for Jesus. I think the text is pretty clear that cleverness and intelligence, even Bible knowledge, don't save. I thought it did until I was 19. I relied upon all of my prior experience, all of my history in Awana, all of my Sunday school, all of my you name it. But knowledge does not save. Only the power of God saves. Trying to be good enough doesn't lead to a relationship with God. It's only when we acknowledge our brokenness that God can begin to heal us. You see, the message of the cross requires humility to respond in faith toward God and accept Christ as the only one strong enough and wise enough to help. Have you come to him for healing? You know, it's a new year. Today is the day to respond. You know, it says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Respond. You know, we're going to actually um, celebrate communion here, and those that are serving can come forward at this time. We're going to remember the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. If you... Uh, if you've accepted this message and if you're, if you're experiencing the transforming power of the cross, then this table's for you. If you'd like to experience that and you're not, then there'll be people that you can talk to. Afterwards, we'll be on the, some of our leaders will be over here to the side. You can talk to them, talk to someone who brought you. But this is, this is what it's about right here. If you can boil down what church is about, it's about Jesus. It's about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and how that changes us. You know, it says later on in the same epistle, the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to do the same, but ask that you, as you receive the elements, hold them and wait, and then we'll take it together.